The Associated Press reports this week that uh, 10 microfilm Bibles, once launched hundreds of thousands of miles into space, set landlocked inside an Oklahoma courthouse while a legal battle rages in two states over who is the rightful owner of these celestial keepsakes. Eight of the ten tiny holy Bibles in dispute landed on the surface of the moon during NASA's 1971 Apollo 14 mission, carried in a pouch by astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Uh, Each isn't much larger than a postage stamp and contains all 1,245 pages of the King James Bible. Etched onto each strip of film at such a small size, its words may be viewed only through a microscope, save for two holy Bible words at the very top of the slide. Shooting the scriptures into the heavens was the brainchild of Apollo Prayer Launch League, uh, formed in the late 1960s to pray for the success of the space program. Who knew such a thing existed? A novel idea at the time, flying a Bible into space led to the trend of sending other souvenirs spaceward, pocket change, Lego figurines, and even a lightsaber wielded by the Star Wars movie character Luke Skywalker. An ongoing fight in Texas and Oklahoma courts shows exactly the complexity of what to do with space relics. In particular, these space Bibles... As I read this story, I, I, I couldn't help asking myself, is this really supposed to be part of our mission? I mean, I have read both the Old and New Testaments, and my understanding was that Jesus said we were to go to the ends of the earth. Um, moon didn't really factor in as far as I could tell. I mean, I recognize that there's a kind of a recreational curiosity about traveling through space and finding intelligent life on other planets, but as far as our responsibilities. Um, Christians are supposed to concentrate their efforts on human beings in our part of the solar system. That seems to be the goal. I mean, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but in reality, it is a good question. What is our mission? And what is the message? And why would you want to actually pay top dollar for a microfilm Bible that wants touched the moon. Uh, I'm uh, in the section of Jonah where Jonah has made a turn. He has changed his ways and he is now going to obviously play a part in encouraging and challenging and calling the Ninevites uh, to follow the Lord. And in today's passage about Jonah's journey, we do see something about the nature of our mission. Not just the church globally, but even for us personally, Our church has a very specific mission. Our vision is to preach Christ, to to shine the light of the gospel of God's love and grace through San Gabriel Valley and into the world. Our mission, if you ever forget it, is on the back of the sign out front. And anybody who joined the church this morning had to, in their application, actually try to remember what that was. Revive believers, reach friends, renew culture. This is the methodology we use And it's all part of a plan. It's all part of God's mission. It starts for us today by looking at Jonah and how God has given him an opportunity to be used to be part of bringing the Lord's message to culture in spite of the fact that by nature he was a rebel. 
in spite of the fact that by practice, he was a rebel. Jonah, at this turning point in life that we see between chapters 2 and 3, saw the futility in pursuing meaning in life apart from being known by God and knowing God and was given a second chance. And what a thrill it is to be able to say that we have a God who's not just the God of the second chance, he's the God of the third chance and the fourth chance. There's an unlimited level of patience in God. And it's rooted in what Christ has done for us. We just celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus is atoning sacrifice for sins. Because Jesus has already paid for every sin, sins we haven't even committed yet, we no longer have to fear that God's just one day just going to snap and say, all right, enough. I've had enough. I, I'm done with you. You were my child, now you're not my child. Paul speaks of a, a patience. The Apostle Paul speaks of something that is really the bedrock of my life. And, and I think is uh, in no s small way part of the foundation of this particular expression of the body of Christ, this church, which is that even your leaders consider themselves to be the worst sinners in need of grace. We are compelled by Scripture and by Paul's example to not only talk about it in a general way, but to let you know that there is no perfect Christian and, and everybody is wrestling with their tendency to trust their nature and trust their instincts and follow their inclinations instead of God's word. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is a trustworthy and desert, uh, this, is, this saying, sorry, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who will, were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul worships God because of his perfect patience with him. The Apostle Paul has set an example for us of what it constitutes to be a Christian in culture, which is not somebody who has um, uh, all their stuff together or hides their broken places, but instead somebody who declares that it's only by Christ's grace and only Christ's righteousness imputed to us that we stand without fault and without fear in the presence of the Lord. And, and because that's true, he's able to say with confidence, I, I'm the worst sinner. Have you ever felt like, like the worst sinner in your church? Have you ever thought, you know, I am absolutely positively the worst person in the room? Well, you're not alone. In fact, I think it's pretty easy to discern from this passage that it's a sign of spiritual growth and maturity that you'd actually sense that I'm really broken and in need of grace more than ever before. Paul wrote this after planting churches and proclaiming the gospel to thousands of people, and he's still saying, I am the worst, because he's continuously being exposed to how rebellious his soul is. And for those of us who've been saved by grace, we rejoice in the relentless pursuit of rebels like Jonah, like us. God uses the consequences, used the consequences of Jonah's rebellion to bring him into conformity with 
his plan for Jonah's life. He does no less for us. Those areas of struggle, those areas of disobedience, those areas where he has to discipline us, he uses those things to help us see that he loves us and he wants us to experience pure joy and walking as he would have us walk. He uses even the rotten things in us to bring about something good. He pursues us. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a great commentary that has helped Brooks and I study through this series. And in this he says, It is solely because we have a God of persistent grace that we are serving him today. But as we noticed in Jonah's case, God has determined that his servants will serve him no matter what it costs him and no matter what it may cost them. See, he knows best. We learn about his mission through Jonah today. There are two components of what it means to be a church that is faithful in proclaiming the message and also a church that can rest in the results. There's, there's, a, there's a real peace that we can know about what it means for us to be a church on a mission right here in this text. We see in this passage, um, in specifically this section of Jonah 3, repentance as a theme. It will continue into next week as well. We've seen Jonah's repentance in the end of chapter 2. We now see Nineveh's repentance. And this is the first of a couple of things I want to share with you this morning. The message that we have, the mission that we have, are really the Lord's missions. And you see this in the first three verses of Jonah chapter 3. And this I really like you to take this to heart as we read. Verse 1 of Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. handful of things in this passage that are worth noting. One is when they speak of the greatness of Nineveh, they're talking about its size. It's clearly not this moral stalwart of the uh, West Asian countries. It, this is not a great place. Hence, Jonah's needed to go there and proclaim the gospel. But what you have is a large city of people that God loves. And when you think about it, three days' walk is how long it would take for you to get around this city. How long would it take us to walk to Santa Monica from Pasadena? That's the size of Nineveh. I mean, big place. Probably not as many people as the greater Los Angeles area, but a big place. And Jonah goes there with the Lord's message. You know, it may seem obvious, but I, I look at this and it says, he called out against them, and it says in verse 2, the message that he tells them. He tells them, I have a specific message for you to give. And the message for Jonah to give to the Ninevites is the same as our message to the world in our time. And the message is simply this. Repent and believe the good news that God will graciously forgive our great iniquity. Now I have to confess to you that the word repent is a word I have, I have historically, as have others, had a real adverse reaction to. Almost a guttural sort of, Ugh. there's just something about the word. You don't use it a lot in your regular vocabulary. 
You know, you're not telling people who are you're mad at at work to repent of their misdeeds towards you. So it's just an odd way to speak to one another. And, you know, I grew up Catholic, and so, like, we didn't talk about, like, we didn't hear people, you know, up in front of people going, repent for Jesus is coming soon, you know. We didn't have a lot of that. And so all of the stereotypes of television and movies and all of the weird experiences I had at churches at one time in my life where people misused the word and misrepresented what it was have made me, as I realized in my time at the School of Spiritual Direction, made me realize that I need an overhaul of my default definition and my default sort of disposition towards hearing the word repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I have to admit that my instinct is to hear the word repent and to hear it in the context of condemnation and shame and a lot of things that make me just feel like, I don't want to do that. It feels a lot like death uh, instead of what it's supposed to feel like. Real repentance has a, an, a, a part of it that is grief over our proneness to wander and our, and our sin against God, but it produces a joy because repentance biblically is a process whereby God calls us to turn and follow his holy will and best plan for our lives. This plan of following Jesus requires an admission on our part that we have a need for him and that we actually probably think we know best. And this is the default position of humanity. It's something that the wisest of the wise will tell you that we should fight against, but our world would say something very differently. All you have to do is turn on the TV and watch self-help gurus talk about how you have all that you need within all the strength you have in you, just release that inner giant. No reference to God, no reference to anything. You have this. You got this. You can do this on your own. Trust your instincts. Trust your judgment. Trust your feelings. Trust your desires. King Solomon, who had quite a bit of experience with foolish fleshly pursuits and their resulting consequences, said this in Proverbs chapter 3, something very different. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make, your, he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We're, we're encouraged in God's word to distrust that something in us, that instinct that says, I should be first. There's more joy in keeping than giving. I should be the greatest. I don't need to be the servant. There's something in our nature that insists that we be grand instead of really Jesus being grand. It, there's something in us that is selfish. The Bible calls it sin. We have to turn from that. We've been called to experience life by following Christ and this is the promise of Scripture, that if we trust in the Lord and not our own understanding, that we walk in paths that produce health in our lives. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, asks, wow, he's going all Presbyterian on you. 
What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, and you know it's got to be an important thing if the word doth is in it, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, repentance is a new desire to follow God, a grief over our disobedience and our waywardness, over our sinfulness. If you're like me, you might ask the question, what do I do if I don't feel all that badly about what I'm doing that I know I'm not supposed to be doing or what I know I'm supposed to be doing that I have no real interest in doing? What happens when our souls are not really feeling like repenting? What does it look like to repent? What does it mean when we kind of continuously wrestle with the same sins? Uh, What does repentance even look like? I have to give attribution at this point in the message because uh, this is what we do in all honesty. Uh, When we rip off entire sections of somebody else's thought, we make sure you know we're not thinking this ourselves. Um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Shaw is an associate professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. And he wrote a piece about repentance that has really been helpful for me. And I want to share it with you. It's a lengthy read, so I, I appreciate your willingness to listen along as I share his thought about repentance. Imagine repentance as a man walking in one direction who suddenly realizes that he is walking in the opposite direction from which he should be walking. He stops. He turns around. Then he begins walking in a new direction. It is a quick and simple process. He realizes. He stops. He turns. But imagine someone on a bicycle realizing he is going the wrong direction. In one sense, it is still obvious. He stops. He turns around, he begins bicycling in a new direction. But it is a longer process. He has to come to a stop. Depending on his speed, that may take some time. The turning around also takes longer. And it takes longer to get up to full speed in the new direction. The process is the same for a man in a car, but it takes longer than the man it takes longer than for the man on the bike. And it may require going somewhat out of his way before he gets back on the right track. The process is the same for a man on a motorcycle. No, uh, uh, he says speedboat. He has to slow down, enter the turn, and come back. But the time and distance required to do so is much longer than what was required for the man walking. Now imagine that the man is piloting a super tanker. It takes him miles to slow the ship down enough to even begin to make the turn. The turn itself is immense, taking him quite a distance from his intended course. Then it also takes a large amount of time to get up to full speed in the new direction. Now apply the images to repentance. Some sins are small and easy. We stop and walk the other way. Some sins, like the bicycle, are a little more difficult. In God's work in the believer, He takes a little time to bring the believer to an awareness that his course is actually a sinful one. Then there is the process of coming to a stop, the process of the turn itself, 
and the process of getting up to speed in faithfulness. But some sins are enormous. We may not be aware that they are really sins. Or they may be so deeply ingrained in us that we are not willing at first to recognize them as sins. God works patiently with us, carefully slowing us down as the captain does with the ship so that he can bring us through the turn and into the new direction where he can bring us up to full speed. There are two things that I find helpful about this illustration. First is the fact that God does not work repentance in us instantaneously but over time. So the awareness of sin and the desire to change come gradually. God brings us, as it were, to a full stop slowly and carefully So there are going to be many slips and falls on the way to that stopping point. The second thing has to do with the turning itself. In the image of the ship turning, there is a long time when the ship is neither on the old course nor on the new course, but as it were, dead in the water, and so it may well be in the life of the Christian. The sin has been admitted. The slips and the falls have gotten fewer, but there seems to be little progress. We seem to be dead in the water. At that point, we are in the turn. Speed will pick up. Godliness will grow, but it will do so slowly as God patiently works with us. So if you've prayed for repentance for some particular sin and there's been no instantaneous change, keep praying. God has promised to work and he will, and you will be glad in the end that he did it slowly and carefully. The message and the mission are rooted in God's call for us to turn and follow. That was true for the Ninevites. It's true for our culture. It's becoming increasingly easy for some well-intended Christians to subtract the concept of turning and following the Lord from their gospel. And the gospel, the good news is not just that God loves you, it's that God loves you enough to have you turn and follow him into a way that brings health to your bones and life to your soul. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Here's the second thing I think is really valuable from Jonah this morning, and that is any evidence of repentance and any results that we'd see in ministry are the Lord's. Not only are the mission and the message the Lord's, but the repentance and the results, these are all from God as well. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, quote, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's message was not, hey, I have your best life now. It was, friends, Romans, countrymen, (laughs) Ninevites, lend me your ears. 40 days. That's when God's going to go ahead and bring judgment. But he's calling them. They can change. They can turn. Otherwise, we know he's saying this because otherwise the people wouldn't have known that they could put on sackcloth and ashes and turn and repent and God would be merciful to them. They obviously heard the call of God that he did not want to bring judgment. He wanted to bring mercy. But they needed to say, we want it. We call for it. And so they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. And as I mentioned before, some of us, We'll pray quietly during our uh, time of prayer next week. And if you want to be a part of a quiet group of people who fast and pray, email prayer at prismchurch.com and um, you'll get a copy of 
something to guide you into what fasting really is all about. We do that because Jesus said you probably shouldn't go around parading that you're fasting. Um, you can join in in the prayer, but uh, they did this fasting in response to a sense that they had really grieved the Lord. This is all they knew how to do is just go, oh God, what have we done? This call to repentance was something Jonah was now able to do because he understood it now. He was now able to declare the merciful call of salvation because he experienced the saving grace of God himself. To be a messenger of grace, we, like Jonah, need to be broken, melted, molded, and filled with the love of God. Without compassion, the message we would bring would take on an air of self-righteousness. Without personal comprehension of our own brokenness, our own proneness to wander, we can't extend patience, the same patience that God extends to you. He wants you to extend to others. See, when we become clear and clearer about our own brokenness, we discover that repentance, that which gets birthed in us, is not something that happens just one time. It's a life of realizing that our souls long for God but are easily misled into chasing things that can never satisfy. Martin Luther, when he wrote his 95 Theses, made a point to put first, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is where we're constantly coming into contact with the reality that we don't want to do what God says. And so we have to learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. At prison, we contend for the scriptural teaching that even the desire to repent is a gift from God. It's not something you whoop up. You don't work this up in yourselves. It's not gritting your teeth and determining by your own self-will that you will change. It's turning away and calling out to God. It's asking him to create life in you. It's asking him to birth trust in you. It's asking him to bring about what the Bible calls his sanctifying of us, his setting apart of us for his service, for his glory. You see, in the way this happens, by calling out to him and asking him to move in us, is the same thing that happens in how we are made right with God through our what's called justification, how we made, we're made right with God by virtue of a gift of faith that is born in us in Christ. The New City Catechism, which is the doctrinal standard of our church, question 35 says, asks, since we are redeemed by grace alone through faith alone, where does all this faith come from? And the answer to that is all the gifts we receive from Christ, we receive through the Holy Spirit, including faith itself. Everything is a result of his grace to us. And once we recognize that our works for salvation produce nothing, that we can't do enough to get God to love us because he can't love us any more than he already does. Once we realize that salvation is a mere act of dependence and humility, a letting go of our efforts to make God, force God to love us, which is really silly when you think about it, when it's just a matter of saying, I need mercy, we let go of that and salvation comes. Remarkably, that is precisely the time we're born into new life. And in the same way, as followers of Christ, we're called to relinquish our human efforts to fill our souls with anything 
but the reality that we are the beloved children of God. And once we put to death these efforts, and it's an ongoing putting to death of my sense that I need to have this to know life, or I need this to make my life complete. Once we put to death these efforts, we find joy in God. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just about the time you feel like I've got nothing is when God starts to do that work in you to produce something. He wants to produce something because he wants to be the one seen in your life. And Sinclair Ferguson would say with regards to evangelism, to reaching out to the world. Jonah's reaching out to the Ninevites and seeing people come to know him. That fruitful evangelism, and I'm quoting him, is the byproduct of death-producing life principles. It's when we come to share spiritually and occasions physically in Christ's death that his power is demonstrated in our weakness and others are drawn to him. See, when we let go of trying to impress others with whatever godliness we, made, we have managed to attain and really celebrate the fact that we are only his children by grace, that's when people start listening. I grew up, spiritually speaking, in my young college years in a climate where people said being a good witness was not making any mistakes in front of people who weren't Christians. You know, don't blow your witness was something they often said. You know, and that meant that you just read to be really uptight around people who weren't Christians. You had to almost fake that you had anything going on. You had to keep that hidden because that wouldn't glorify Jesus. Well, this, friends, isn't the gospel. And I remember my experience when I was working for a trucking company in the summer between my junior and senior year in college or my sophomore and junior year in college, both years. I was trying to be a good witness for the Lord by living a life of holiness in front of my heathen truck driving friends and uh, that's never a good posture to take with people just for the record um, but I ended up blowing it I, I broke something really valuable in the warehouse and they all laughed at me and it was embarrassing and I just uncorked I, I, I couldn't keep it inside any longer I just blew a gasket and I started yelling at them and I used some language that I can't really use in church. And, uh, and I remember walking out into the, into the yard behind the warehouse thinking to myself, I just blew my witness. Like a poker game where you realize you just showed all your cards or you pushed all your chips in and you realize I, I'm going to lose. I've lost. And that's the moment when God told me, oh, there's still one more card to, to play. And that is you going in front of these people and saying, I'm sorry, and that I blew it, which is a far less attractive card to play than just being perfect in everybody's sight. But I sucked it up, and I walked into the warehouse, and I said to everybody, hey, I blew it. And guys, I'm really sorry I lost my temper. And there was a turning point there in that moment. They started actually befriending me in ways they hadn't before. They started actually sharing their lives with me. I became real to them and in many ways I got to tell you this is where the gospel actually gets seen because if we pretend that we have all our crud together and we hide all of the places where we're broken and struggling from people who don't know Christ even those who are struggling and may 
not be walking closely with Christ anymore. What we do is we imply that our comfort level with God is proportional to how holy we are in our conduct. And that's just not true. Christianity, the gospel is, we're comfortable because Christ has made us comfortable. His righteousness has made us acceptable to the Father. Our brokenness only highlights the fact that it's His righteousness that makes us secure. That's why people would go, okay, now I want to understand this Christianity because if you're a screw-up like I am in a lot of ways, then how in the world are you comfortable going to church and raising your hands or doing whatever it is you religious people do? And that's when we get to say, it's from God. Any repentance, it's from God. Anybody responding to the gospel, that's God's work. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the message. So let's pray to that end this morning, shall we? Lord, you are good, and your word says your love endures forever. And there is great comfort for us in that because we know we need an enduring Father in heaven. We are a people that are prone to uh, sin against you because it's easy, because it's right in our face. And we're sadly coming to terms with that that inclination doesn't seem to go away and that we need a daily refueling of our sense of your love for us and the great mighty reality that we are your daughters and sons so that out of just a mind-blowing sense of gratitude we would live lives of repentance committing ourselves to admitting when we failed and getting back on the path to following you and it's not how we are okay with you Jesus has made us righteous it's that you've called us to a life of growing in our capacity to trust you and live life in a way that you would like to pour out health to our lives and joy to our souls. So we cry out to you, help us turn. Work in us. Create in us a new heart, a thirst for righteousness. We don't have these things. We can't do it. We need you to create it within us. And Father, when it comes, we will give you the praise and the glory and the honor because we'll know that it's from you and not ourselves. In Jesus' name.